She may take many shapes and names, but she's always recognizable by two features, and those are her radiance and her persistence. She is the dawn, the breaking of the day, sometimes the morning star, the first light, and ultimately the origin of life itself. Welcome to Fair Folk. I'm Danica Boyce. Hello, my dear friends. I am so pleased to welcome you to this episode of Fair Folk, all about the dawn goddess of Indo-European mythology, language origin, paganism, and folklore. But first, I'd like to share some very good news. I will be offering my signature course, Abundance Paganism, once again, starting May 1st. And so I will start registration for that in mid-April. So if you're listening to the podcast in the first couple weeks of April, you can hop on the mailing list through the link in the show notes in order to hear about how to register for Abundance Paganism while it's still in the early bird phase, the first week or afterwards. And if it's post April 14th or 15th, then I will have put the link to register for Abundance Paganism directly in the show notes. But either way, if you have questions about this course or about my work in general, you can email me at fairfolkcast at gmail.com or you can message me on Instagram or on Facebook. There's a lot of ways to get a hold of me (laughs) and some of them are linked in the show notes and others are a little more intuitive. I'm just very excited to be offering this course again. Every time that I offer it, the momentum grows with which people are like learning and building community. Every time I offer it, there's more people enrolled and it's just every time it surprises me, the connections that people make between cultures, between ideas, and just the radical, marvelous growth that I see happening in people's lives when they engage in this course and in this course of study, because it's partly study of paganism and partly study of how to approach paganism and folklore and living traditional European spiritualities with an ethical (laughs) grounding and also a sense of the importance of your own intuition and how to tune into that on all the levels that we engage with tradition, spirituality, and earth-based living, however you conceive of that. I just feel a lot of passion (laughs) for helping people expand their sense of what's possible in their life and in their means of connecting. The ideas of connection and expansion are very much at the heart of what's taught in that course. And it's also a course that is accessible to almost anybody. If you're craving a deepening and strengthening of your spiritual practice based in European tradition, and you resonate with my words here and my actions here and elsewhere, this might just be the course for you. So let me know if you're interested and I can hook you up with the sales page. Or if it's the second half of April, again, it'll be right in the show notes. So let's get started with the Dawn Goddess in Indo-European paganism. I've been looking forward to making an episode about Dawn Goddesses for some time because it's a big interest of mine. One of the reasons for that is the fact that my name, Danica or Danisa, means morning star or more properly, day star in 
some Slavic languages, including the language of the region that I am currently inhabiting, which is Montenegro in the Balkans, and Montenegrins speak Serbo-Croatian language, which is the origin of Danica. But also it feels like the right time right now for me to be exploring dawn goddess tradition and because of the place that I'm in and because of the month that it is. I'll get into that in further detail. There are so few goddesses in the Indo-European record to begin with, and this one, the dawn goddess, just has so much to offer. And every year I hear a lot of discussion around this or that detail of whether Aostra is real or what it means etc., and especially in relationship to the month of April, which it is now. The goddess of the dawn is very well attested all across Europe and was celebrated every day for thousands of years by thousands of people. She provides a subject for a super accessible and inspiring and perennial ritual that pagans have all stripes have performed across time and continue to do so. And Christians do as well in the guise of Christianity. And that ritual is greeting the dawn in the morning. The dawn goddess of most European cultures is deeply connected with ideas of movement, cyclicality, unchangingness, beauty, femininity, youth, birth, and rebirth. She may take many shapes and names, but she's always recognizable by two features, and those are her radiance and her persistence. She is the dawn, the breaking of the day, sometimes the morning star, the first light, and ultimately the origin of life itself. In Indo-European tradition, the culture and language from which most European languages derive, and a powerful influence on European paganism prior to Christianization, the dawn goddess was a central figure, and hymns, songs, and poetry make frequent reference to this figure, whose features are rather similar across cultural groups. Though most gods were gendered masculine in Indo-European tradition, very likely in contrast to what came before, by the way, at least in Northwestern Europe, the dawn across Indo-European cultures has overwhelmingly been gendered feminine. Therefore, I'll be referring to this figure as feminine throughout the episode, though you can refer to the dawn in whatever gendered way or non-gendered way that you wish. So the information I share about the dawn goddess in this episode emerges at its earliest scraps from the theoretical Proto-Indo-Europeans, who spread across Eurasia, possibly from the Russian steppes, in around a 2,000-year period, between the 4th millennium BCE, before the Common Era, the Neolithic Era, and the 2nd millennium BCE, known as the Bronze Age. A lot of the historical specificity of the theoretical Proto-Indo-Europeans and the later related Indo-European cultures is rather vague and conjectural, but the Indo-European languages tend to have some cultural elements in common, at least because of their shared language family. And one of those common features is a goddess of the dawn, celebrated through poetry, ritual, song, and myth, though in varying degrees of conservation from one culture to the next. In general, I think the majority of song about the dawn goddess remains in Baltic cultures, and much of it is attached to the morning star. The majority of implied ritual remains in pre-Hindu Vedas, and the majority of poetry remains in Greek and Roman culture and writing. I should note the morning star in Latvian songs is masculine, which is anomalous, though in neighboring Lithuania it's feminine like elsewhere in Europe. So together with bits and pieces from various cultures of Indo-European kinship, 
we can paint a general picture of a goddess of the dawn that would be recognized by all of these people. Though there is no one original perfect parent figure in the past, aside from the objective and unarguable existence of the dawn itself. And that, to me, would actually be plenty, but luckily we have much more to go on. So I'll start with her name. The various titles for the goddess of the dawn likely come from a similar Proto-Indo-European root that has been proposed by linguists, and that is Hausos. Hausos is also the origin of the word east, the direction where the sun rises. The names of this figure tend to share that initial syllable that sounds like aus, known in Greek as eos, Latin aurora, Lithuanian as ausrene, Germanic countries and languages as ostara, Old English eostra, but not all of her names fit the form. For example, Slavic zoria is one of the major exceptions, and Irish bridget, both of which I'll talk about more later in this episode. Sometimes the goddess is just one figure, but she also is often referred to as several figures or sisters, and collectively the dawns, because we see a new one every single day. I'll run through some of the main features of Indo-European dawn goddesses and then dig in a little more deeply to some of the specific details. One common action of the dawn goddess is that she opens the gates or the doors for the sun to enter through into the hall of the sky or the day, and her sister dusk or night closes them at the other end of the sky. She also tends to keep horses or cattle that pull the sun across the sky. The earlier versions of her show the cattle, especially pink or red ones, and after the introduction of horse and chariot to Europe, probably by the Indo-Europeans, she is shown as keeping or leading the horses and chariot that pull the sun across the sky, just like the one depicted on the Trondholm sun chariot found in a Danish bog. She is very frequently referred to as rosy-fingered in Greek and Roman poetry, such as Homer's um, Odyssey, and in Latvian folk songs, the related sun god, Saule, her fingers are described as covered with golden rings, and the many references to hands and arms in the traditions that describe the dawn goddess show there is a very strong sense of intentionality in her character, and of care in her initiation of the morning. She's very much personified and connected with a sense of agency and reliability, especially in the Rig Veda, which I'll share some lines from later. At the same time, Greek Eos and Roman Aurora are also often shown to be reluctant risers at times, as well as Lithuanian Saule, the sun goddess. Eos was known especially for her love of men and her tendency to kidnap them, so sometimes she's described as rising from bed with a lover, which may explain her hesitation in starting the day. There's also an interesting association between the dawn goddess and two celestial twin brothers, sometimes called the divine twins, and these are horsemen who pull the chariot of the sun across the sky. And they appear all over Indo-European cultures, often as the sons of the sun. Sometimes dawn is courted by these twin brothers, and sometimes they are her brothers. The dawn goddess may be prayed to for any number of things, but one of the common ones from the Rig Veda is for wealth and luck. And I'd guess that's because of her connection with timely and orderly labor. In some regions, especially Slavic and perhaps Germanic and Celtic, she's also connected with marriage and childbirth. And when this association comes up, it's no surprise given the fact that she's reborn every day, and also connected with femininity, sexuality, 
and usefulness, and also sometimes virginity. An example of this broader field of meaning and folklore are the Zorias, figures from Slavic folklore that you could sometimes call the dawns, or the morning and evening stars, though sometimes there are more than two, and they might represent morning, noon, and night, or morning, night, and midnight. Zoria Utrenyaya, the morning star, and Zoria Vechernyaya live in the mythical invisible isle of Buyan. They live on it, <laughs> that is, at the center of the world. And this island has a mythic oak tree, a bird, and a snake, and the stone of stones, from under which healing rivers flow. I love to think that they live at the center of the earth because there's this sense of them being a part of the beginning of everything. In Poland, the Zorzas, which are the dawns in their language, also serve the function of three sisters who spin and determine the well-being of children, among other things, much like the Nordic Norns and the Greek Fates do. There's a spell recorded in the 19th century collection of folklore and myth called Songs of the Russian People by William Ralston that asks the Zarias for assistance with the health and abundance of a rye crop. It says, Ho, thou morning Zarya, and thou evening Zarya, fall upon my rye, that it may grow up tall as a forest, stout as an oak. The same book reports a lovely riddle from Belarus that personifies the dawn as well, and tells of how Zara Zaranitsa, a beautiful virgin, was walking in the sky and dropped her keys, presumably after closing the doors to the sky. The moon saw the keys, but said nothing. The sun saw them and lifted them up. The answer to the riddle is that her keys are the sparkling dew on the ground, which the sun lifts up with its heat, but the moon leaves to lay in the grass and forests before dawn. A figure I wouldn't want to leave out of the discussion, who bears several aspects of Indo-European dawn goddesses, but is not limited to a personification of the literal dawn, is Bridget of Ireland, later known as Saint Bridget, one of the most revered figures in Irish mythology and paganism, from her origins as a daughter of the Dagda through her continued life in the lore around the medieval figure called St. Bridget, who had a monastery in Kildare. St. Bridget is said to have been born at dawn. She was also accompanied by a red-eared cow, which is an animal that we know is associated with the dawn goddess, and the color of its ears further connected to the dawn's colors, not to mention Bridget's red hair as well. St. Bridget's followers also had a perpetual flame lit at their abbey in Kildare, which I understand was a tradition taken up by the nuns in the abbey from the pagan devotion to the Bridget that preceded it. This perpetual flame connects her to the perpetual nature of the sun, which of course is watched over and tended by the dawn goddess. It was described in a medieval account as inextinguishable, which connects it strongly with the ancient description of the dawn's tenacity and endurance. There's a really interesting connection that I'd like to make between Bridget and thunder gods um, and the oak tree. Though the oak tree is primarily connected with thunder gods, specifically across Indo-European cultures, there's also some moments where it seems to bear relationship to dawn goddesses as well. And this can be seen in the fact that Kildare Abbey, which is where Bridget established her monastery in the Middle Ages, was named for the oak tree that stood on that spot that was sacred to her specifically and was one of the reasons that they established the monastery there. And there's also this really cool connection to the fact that the oak tree that grows on the island of Buya, where the Zorias live in Slavic mythology, has the same 
thunder god connection. And St. Bridget shares her feast day with a Slavic and Baltic pagan celebration of the thunder god, which was carried forward into Christian celebrations as Our Lady of the Thunder Candle on February 2nd and St. Bridget's Day. Bridget's name is Old Irish for Exalted One or High One, and she's very likely related to the Celtic goddess Brigantia from the British Isles and mainland Celtic paganism, whose name is also incidentally cognate with one of the epithets for the Vedic dawn goddess Ushas Berhati, meaning high, from the proposed Indo-European root berg, to rise. So hills and heights share the same root in some of these regions as Bridget's name, which could imply that the goddess was connected with these places, but there's no guarantee of that specifically in the case of Bridget, as far as I know. I wouldn't be surprised at all, though, if there was a connection between hills and dawn goddess worship in Celtic regions, if the evidence showed up for it. As I mentioned before, one of the strongest features of the dawn goddess is her perpetual nature, her reliability, and this feature shows up repeatedly in the Vedic literature that refers to her. There are 40 hymns to Ushas, the Vedic dawn goddess in the Rig Veda. In Vedic tradition, the dawn goddess Ushas is sometimes spoken of as the daughter of Agni, the sun god, or Dais, the sky father, whose name is cognate with Zeus. She's lauded as the embodiment of the initiating life principle, the one who sets things into motion and reveals hidden truths with her all-seeing eye. She rides a golden chariot to make way for the sun, and she is incredibly beautiful. She has a sister called Ratri, representing the nighttime, though the two of them never meet. And as you may recognize, this is a relationship that's echoed in other Indo-European mythic and poetic traditions as well. There's a Latvian riddle that goes, two sisters who are at odds. One appears, the other runs away. One is white, the other black. And a Russian one saying, the black cow has laid everybody low. The white cow has brought them back to life. Dawn is also shown possessing white horses, and her common connection to whiteness, I would say is not a racial designation, but rather an expression of her most obvious feature, which is just her bringing of bright daylight. Her radiance, which can be any hue, from white through gold and pink to red. Because of her strict regularity and upholding of sacred balance of light and dark, she's seen as producing order and productivity as an extension of this. She's also connected with law. Here are some lines from the Rig Veda demonstrating her character and relationships. These hymns praise her for the light and order she brings humankind in the earth, and they also ask her to bestow wealth on those who make offerings to her. The first I'll share is translated from Ralph Griffith in 1896, and I've modernized some words for ease of understanding. This young maid from the east hath shone upon us. She harnesses her team of bright red oxen. She will beam forth. The light will hasten hither, and Agni, the fire god, will be present in each dwelling. As the birds fly forth from their resting places, so men with store of food rise at thy dawning. Yea, to the liberal mortal who remains at home, O goddess dawn, much good thou bringest. Praised through my prayer be you who should be lauded. You have increased our wealth, you dawns who love us. Goddesses, may we win by your good favor wealth to be told by hundreds and by thousands. Here is another of the hymns from the Rig Veda, translated to English, which was brought to life by a musical adaptation by Gustav Holst. If you listen to the accompanying playlist that I've linked in the show notes, 
The recording of this hymn to the dawn is performed by Etheria Vocal Ensemble and Grace Kaluzier. It's called Choral Hymns from the Rig Veda, Hymn to the Dawn. Hear our hymn, O goddess, rich in wealth and wisdom, ever young yet ancient, true to law eternal, wakener of the songbirds, ensign of the eternal. Draw thou near, O fair one, in thy radiant chariot. Bring to her your offering, humbly bow before her, raise your songs of welcome as she comes in splendor. The month of April, which is when I'm releasing this podcast episode, is both famous and controversial in neo-pagan linguistic and historical circles because of one brief statement that the Anglo-Saxon chronicler Bede wrote in his treatise from the year 725 called The Reckoning of Time. He referred to the month of April in his calendar of Anglo-Saxon months by saying, Eostramanath, which we now interpret as the Easter month, comes from the goddess Eostra. We now call the Paschal season by her name, thereby referring to the joys of the new festival with the ancient designation. Unfortunately, no other conclusive evidence of this goddess existed for many centuries to corroborate Bede's claim of a goddess celebrated in the spring month of April, and the subject has, as I said, been hotly debated by scholars in recent decades. But from the reading I've done, I feel very confident in the existence of this goddess. Jacob Grimm of the Grimm Brothers was one of the earliest scholars to begin the discussion, arguing that a similar figure might have been called Ostara in Old High German because of the existence of Ostaramanoth in the language. Grimm also considered her a goddess of the dawn, embodying, as he said, the divinity of the radiant dawn of upspringing light because of her name's relationship to east where the sun rises. This is where some Wiccans derive the name of their spring equinox celebration, which they call Ostara. Then, long after Grimm, in 1958, an archaeologist discovered a collection of over 150 second-century Romano-Germanic votive inscriptions, the deities called the Matroni Austria-Henne, near Morkenharf, Germany. There have been over a thousand inscriptions and depictions in stone of the Matroni in general, from Roman-occupied territories in the first five centuries of the Common Era, beyond those known as austria Henni, the epithet that very likely identifies them with Germanic dawn goddess worship. So beyond the etymology and the existence of those votive inscriptions and the two months with similar names to the dawn goddesses, there are also a few interesting folkloric elements in Indo-European cultures connected to Easter that strongly suggest a continuity from earlier pagan cultures in the celebration of that moment of the year. One example is the fact that almost universally the dawn goddess is described as dancing as the sun rises. Lithuanian Aushrine, the morning star, was supposed to have danced on a stone for the people on the first day of summer. And Saule, the sun, whose mythology is closely related, dances in gilded shoes on a silver hill. Vedic Ushas is described in the hymns as dancing also, often while bearing her beautiful breasts, like a cow bears its udders, which was flattering at the time. <laughs> in Germanic, Slavic, British, and Celtic regions, in records reaching to the present day, it's a widespread practice to climb a height on Easter morning to witness the sun dancing as it rises. The hot cross buns enjoyed by folks at Easter time are also very possibly derived from the offerings of cakes commonly made to pagan gods in the spring, and these ones, the crossed yellow buns, specifically resemble the spoked sun wheel that's known as a symbol for the sun chariot of Indo-European cosmology. And speaking of hills, again, in Lithuania there are several ancient hills dedicated to the morning star goddess Aushrine, where presumably people would perform rituals in her honor. 
perhaps offering songs to her as the sun rose, which was a well-attested tradition in Baltic paganism and has been continued by pagans today, which is something I talk with a pagan priest about in my episode called A Priest and a Piper from 2020. In Russia, there's a festival traditionally celebrated in the week following Easter called Krasnaya Gorka, the Red Hill, referring to the flushing color of the spring and the hill where bread and Easter egg offerings are made to the dead, led by a young woman in red. Folks play egg-rolling games, and this is also an auspicious time for weddings following Lent. The festival is assumed to predate Christianity. All over Europe, there are various games, including the rolling of eggs, especially down hills, at Easter, usually in a competition to see whose egg will go farthest or whose will break first, and often these games were used as a predictor of who would get married first. These egg-rolling games on hills also echo a common Indo-European origin practice of rolling sun wheels down hills. That would be like flaming representations of the sun, and that's more commonly done at the summer solstice. But back to eggs. <laughs> One of the reasons eggs are such a big folklore deal at this time of year is because Lent has just ended and Catholics are allowed to eat eggs again after storing them up for the last 40 days of Lent when they ate no animal products. But of course, the egg is universally acknowledged as the bringer of new life in general, of rebirth and of fertility. Not to mention the fact that hens begin laying more again in the spring when the weather is warmer. Eggs, interestingly, feature in a number of creation stories around the world, including the cosmogonies of Finnish, Greek, Egyptian, and Chinese mythology. Often in these stories, as in the Finnish myth, the shell is broken in two, and one side becomes the sea or land, and the other the sky. So from the Finnish Kalevala I read, One egg's lower half transformed and became the earth below, and its upper half transmuted and became the sky above. From the yoke the sun was made, light of day to shine upon us. From the white the moon was formed, light of night to gleam above us. All the colored brighter bits rose to the stars of heaven, and the darker crumbs changed into clouds and cloudlets in the sky. With their round, rich, golden yolks, eggs very much resemble the sun, and because they are eggs, also the rebirth of the sun. Therefore, rolling them down a hill resembles the action of the sun at dawn on Easter, especially at a time when the sun was expected to twirl and dance with joy. So what are some of the rituals that were associated with the dawn goddess or we could perform now? One tradition that I mentioned that's attested for thousands of years is simply saluting the sun as it rises. So this may be through offering morning prayers or hymns facing east, watching the sunrise, like those ones that I read from the Vedas. In Greece, they talk about making offerings to the gods at dawn. Hesiod said, both when you go to bed and when the divine light returns, so that they may have a favorable mind toward you. And Plato specifically said folks prostrate themselves and kiss hands at sunrise and sunset, and moonrise and moonset also. Which I imagine is something like the modern air kiss, but I don't know if you have any ideas about what hand kissing is in ancient Greece, I'd love to hear about it. Farmers in locations as remote from one another as Bavaria and Uist, a western Scottish island that does have some Germanic heritage, had a long tradition of lifting their hat in a salutation to the rising sun. There are even chants in Scottish Gaelic dedicated to the rising and setting sun recorded in the book Carmina Gedelica, like this one. Hail to you, O sun of the seasons, as you travel the skies aloft. Your steps are strong on the wing of the heavens. 
You are the glorious mother of the stars. You lie down in the destructive ocean without impairment and without fear. You rise up on the peaceful wave crest like a youthful queen in bloom. As you've probably seen, one of the most common rituals to the dawn goddess, aside from making offerings of fire, food, or libations, is the offering of hymns. And one of the practices that I would say survived through Christianity is offering hymns to the Virgin Mary, where she is referred to as the morning star. And it's really interesting, too, that close to the time of year when her Annunciation was celebrated in March, this is about a week before the beginning of April, there would be celebrations in Scandinavia of something called the Spring Lady. So there is a connection between springtime in some traditions and Mary becoming pregnant by God. There's this celestial pregnancy and rebirth aspect of Virgin Mary worship in the springtime. I'd like to tell you a story from my life recently in light of all of these (laughs) ideas and practices and as an example of ways to ritualize dawn goddess worship. Shortly after my partner and I arrived here in Montenegro, we discovered this small ruin in a mountain valley above the town, and it was dated 1559 on the lintel, and inscribed to Sveti Marie, Saint or Holy Mary. And it had a settlement around it, which is in ruins now, and is quite beautiful. I had a sense when we first arrived there that the church was connected with the Virgin Mary, and uh, the inscription above the door confirmed this for me, but I was uncertain at first. It was more of an instinct. But either way, I knew that the church was Catholic, and I had the sense that I'd like to record myself singing a Latin hymn there at the beginning of April at dawn as an offering to the dawn goddess in line with the beginning of Eostramonath. As I was walking down the hill that day that I first discovered the church, a hymn that had been stuck in my head for a month now because of its beautiful melody, popped into my head again. And the hymn is called Polarum Regina, and it's from the 14th century Libra Vermel of Montserrat Monastery in Catalonia. Many of the songs in the manuscript were from an earlier time than the book was written, and they all tend to have an accessible, folkloric, and sometimes danceable quality. And the reason for this is explained in the fact that the book states the songs were intended for pilgrims visiting the shrine to the Virgin Mary at the monastery there to sing and dance to, which suits my intentions well as a visitor to this Marian church ruin from afar. So when I got home that day, I looked up the Latin lyrics to Polarum Regina, the song that, as I said, randomly popped into my head, and I discovered that the song addresses the Virgin Mary repeatedly calling her the Morning Star, it repeats, Stella Matutina Dele Celera, Star of the Morning, Take Away Our Sins. The imagery of the Morning Star Goddess and other pre-Christian goddesses was very enthusiastically, and rather obviously at times, absorbed into the cult and worship of the Christian Virgin Mary, after Europe's conversion to Christianity and throughout the Middle Ages. This is the same dawn goddess I had in mind when planning my ritual visit to the site on the 1st of April, so her appearance in the song I chose not knowing the Latin words for morning star, were pretty remarkable to me. Another fascinating feature of the hymn I want you to know about is how it's structured. The hymn mentions three moments in time, when Mary conceived Jesus, impregnated by God, when she gives birth, and after giving birth, when she's a mother. The description of these moments is followed every time by the repetition of this line, semper permensisti in violata which translates into something like, always and persistently inviolate. 
In the context of Christianity, this adjective refers to her virginity, before, during, and after childbirth, but I think inviolate can also extend its meaning to include unspoiled or even unscathed, perhaps, enduring without meaningful change from outside. And as I've mentioned in this episode before, one of the main features of the dawn goddess in her Indo-European worship is the strength of her endurance, coupled with her magical ability to be reborn every single day as new. Just as the goddess herself is, regardless of the influence of Jesus or Christianity in the realm she governs, that is, the sky, renewal, time, and life itself. No matter what ideology comes and goes, the dawn goddess remains and returns as new at the end of every dark night. So before dawn, on April 1st, my partner and I woke and hiked to the mountain above Kator and made camp inside this small chapel surrounded by an abandoned monastery and lit candles. And I offered this song to the dawn goddess as the light rose around me and the sun peeped over the hill. Here is my rendition of Polarum Regina in an untrained voice and a dead language in an abandoned church, a hymn for a goddess that cannot die in devotion to the rewilding of human cultures and the reclamation of seemingly lost wisdom and clarity that can never really be lost and is as common as the day is new. Thank you. 
I was singing the song in the little abandoned church, I saw the light of the dawn fill the high valley through the door. I heard birds singing in increasing volume, welcoming the day. At one point, I felt insecure about the quality of my singing, and a gentle breeze flew in the door toward me, lifting my hair around my face, kissing my cheeks, and assuring me that someone was there, the dawn, I suppose, and that my song was being received. It felt like a very gentle and a reassuring presence. One of the reasons I've made this episode today is that I really strongly feel the desire to revive the dawn goddess in our understanding of paganism. She provides an example of a daily reset, which can be a model for a larger reset, a larger new dawn, where humans can live again with awareness of the cycles of the earth, of light and dark in balance, of giving and receiving in equal measure. In my understanding, the key to connection with older and more resonant ways of life is the willingness to listen, both to the communication of the radiant matter of nature all around us, but also the quiet voice within and the loving creative power innate in all of us, the power that will allow us to build a happier, more connected and reverent society in communion with the non-human and the eternal. That's all I have to offer on Dawn Goddesses for the day. But if you're interested in working with me as a pagan or small business abundance coach, I offer 90-minute one-on-one coaching sessions by request. You just need to message me on Instagram at danica.voice or email me at fairfocast at gmail.com and I'll share the pricing and answer any questions you have about what it's like working with me. And if you're interested in my signature course, Abundance Paganism, as I said, registration starts mid-April for the next round and I'll be sharing the sign-up link by email and on Instagram starting then with a reduced early bird rate for the first week. I'm really excited to meet the new group of people who will be connecting and expanding with me in this round, and I can't wait to see what possibilities for being and spiritual practices we will uncover together. I also want you to check out my new YouTube channel produced by my partner and I, and you can find that through the link in the show notes. I've actually posted a video about the ritual song I sang right there, and you can see the stunning place where I recorded it in all the glory of the early morning in April. So thank you so much for joining me today. I hope this podcast brings you joy and information, and I hope you'll join us in our new video capacity on YouTube through the Fair Folk Podcast YouTube channel, and happy dawning of a new day, dawning of a new era. Thank you very much to Sylvia Woods for providing the theme music to Fair Folk Podcast, which is her song, Forest March.